Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We are going to have a, a great show today, a very <laughs> extremely important show. Um, it, is, it is entitled, Massive Attacks of Disruption, Our Biggest Threat to Our Survival. So these days we're worrying about Russia and Ukraine, although quite frankly we're not Russia worrying about them enough these days. We've been uh, a bit distracted by things like Johnny Depp and, and um, Ghislaine Maxwell and all of these interesting soap operas. Meanwhile, Russia is still invading Ukraine. There's more destruction in Ukraine, and we need to start paying attention again. But and we, you know, we do to the extent that we do worry about it, we think about it as the first act of World War III. But this is just one massive attack of destruction that's threatening our survival. So today's guest, Harlan Ullman, is the author of, he's written 10 books, and this is what he considers his most important book, his most recent book, has just come out. Um, the book is called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, standing for Massive Attacks of Destruction. Uh, how massive attacks of disruption became the looming existential danger to a divided nation and the world at large. And um, so welcome to the show, Harlan. Delighted to be with you. Uh, this is, you know, <laughs> this is, I mean, to say this is an important book and an important topic, obviously, is, um, is quite an understatement. Um, let me uh, first introduce some tell you about some of Harlan's um, achievements. He is a globally recognized thought leader and strategic thinker. Among his better-known innovative concepts are shock and awe, a brains-based approach to strategic thinking, and massive attacks of destruction. He is a, a former Navy, naval person and swift boat skipper in Vietnam who carried out over 150 combat missions, and later he commanded a destroyer in the Persian Gulf. He has advised heads of government and industry. He has also chaired several companies. And this is his 10th and, as I said, most important book that lays out the issues and makes many recommendations to repair a broken government, infrastructure, and in many ways a flawed national security policy. Um, he also is a columnist for UPI. Well, Harlan, let me just uh, let me just read some of the. Well, during the next the first break, I'll read some of the titles of your of your books, which are incredibly impre impressive. Now, today, um, I thought we could talk first about your general concept of massive attack of disruption, um, and then later on get into. Uh, Ukraine and your question, at, well, the question that you pose to all of us really is, um, can anyone win the war in Ukraine? But first, I think it would be good to um, elucidate the concept in general and some of the examples of this concept of massive attacks of disruption. Uh, I, I would be delighted because uh, indeed today, the special hearing of the January 6th committee certainly has underscored the massive attack of disruption against our Constitution and the fact that government is not working. And indeed, in my book, I argue that the biggest act of massive disruption we have is failed and failing government, in which neither Republicans and Democrats are able to be providing the government we need. But directly, you live in a part of the world that is undergoing massive attacks of disruption called climate change. You have water shortages. The Colorado River is now the Colorado Creek, massive fires and so forth. And so what people do not understand is that we look at events in a one-off situation. COVID-19, for example, as something that we had to take on. But what we don't realize is that COVID-19 killed more Americans than were killed in every battle we fought since 1775. And what are we doing about it? We talk about climate change. We talk about cyber. Indeed, today, if I took away your cell phone, 
if I took away your computer, if I took away your electricity, power, so forth, life would be impossible to live because one of the ironies of our society, and, and given your profession in medicine, you understand this better than most, we have now become dependent and therefore very, very vulnerable simply because as standards of living have improved, these vulnerabilities have been exacerbated. For example, a tanker goes aground in the Suez Canal for two weeks and Detroit cannot make cars because chips are cut off because of supply chain uh, interruptions. Sure. We talk, we talk well, about, and we'll get to Ukraine, uh, the issue about Ukraine in one part is global starvation is going to be created, and what is that going to do to migration? We're worried about the southern border. I guarantee you in three or four or five months that situation is going to be far greater simply because of this interdependence. And so my argument is we have to understand that, yeah, we may be worried about Russia and China, and I think we exaggerate some of the dangers and underestimate their weaknesses, but we need to understand that this is a global threat. And unless we have a comprehensive plan to deal with it, our standards of living are going to decline, and the American dream is going to be very, very difficult for most people to reach. And part of that is going to require profound changes in the nature and organization of our government, simply because it's not organized to deal with all these issues, and it has to be. Now, that could be seen as a pessimistic assessment, but I'm very optimistic because in the last three chapters of a 10-chapter book, I lay out a whole range of recommendations that can put America back on the right trajectory. We certainly have the intellectual capital, we have the brain power, and we have the resources to do it. But to do that, we've got to overcome a failed and failing government, largely because both political parties have been driven so far to the right and the left to make government almost impossible to work for the people. You know, it's so interesting, though. Um, you say we have the intellectual brain power, and obviously you're one example, but um, the people with the brains don't seem to get into Congress, for example, and um, and or, you know, perhaps they started out with brains, but um, then they some Congress people have allowed themselves to be bought. But, I mean, do you know what I mean? It's not the intellectuals who are running this country. I'm not sure it was ever the intellectuals since, uh, since the founding fathers, when you have people like Jefferson and Hamilton <laughs> and Madison. Monroe. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe intellectuals was the wrong word, but you know what I mean. People who, who have the brains to figure these things out. Well, I think, yeah, no, I think actually we do. But look, what's happened to our political system? And in one issue, I will name three dates of infamy that define why government is no longer seen as credible. It's lost its, it's, lost its legitimacy. And that has led to a loss of legitimacy of virtually every institution in this country, including the Boy Scouts, the clergy, as well as government. August 7th, 1964, that was the day that Congress, both houses, with only two dissenting votes, passed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that got us into the Vietnam War over North Vietnamese PT boat attacks against two American destroyers that never occurred. At that point, mm. 75% of the Americans trusted the government. What percent of Americans trust the government today? Second date is, is, is February 12, 2000. On that date, the Supreme Court chose George W. Bush as president by 532 votes in Florida. That began the delitivization of the electoral process. And then January 6, 2021, with the riots on Capitol Hill, has further eroded trust and confidence. And so the problem here is that basically our government is not prepared to deal with this crisis of illegitimacy. And now the Supreme Court, after its two verdicts, whatever, however you come across, the Supreme Court has also been delegitimized. So how do you get people to operate in a system that's in gridlock when it's no longer legitimate? Now, as I said, I have right. some ideas about how you fix it. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. And Americans have to realize that we need patience. But over time... I think the parties are going to come to their, their senses, and I hope that the one thing that's going to learn or arise from January 6 hearings is that both parties have become overly radicalized. The Trump party of the Republican party is so far over, and I'm not talking about left or right, but in terms of common sense. And the Democratic party, in my judgment, 
is being pushed too far by progressives with ideas that are just not viable. And I hope people will be so aghast by what these hearings are showing. It's rather like the person uh, who's a reckless car driver and almost kills himself or herself and says, oh, my goodness, I've got to change what I'm doing. And I hope that the hearings will be so searing in the evidence that's produced that Americans will take a step back and say, wait. But, as I said, Carol, if we don't, the trajectory is not a very, very satisfactory one. Well, um, hmm. well first, let's go back to this um, concept of um, existentialist threat. Yeah. I mean, do you think... Um, you know, the things that you're talking about and that we're going to continue to talk about uh, are very big things. <laughs> you know, they are existential. They are so, they're, they're, and, and now after COVID, it's especially hard for people to get their heads around things that are big or existential. That's correct. Absolutely. And that's something. And of course, your profession is very, very helpful here. But future possibility of other pandemics is very, very, very real. What are we doing for COVID-20 or 21 or some other sorts of things? Uh, people will not necessarily agree with climate change, but there is no doubt in my mind, as we learned, should have learned in the ice age, the direction we're headed because of climate change and rising temperatures is indeed existential, if not to the entire planet, certainly to large numbers of populations. I'll give you an example. I'm a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, which is in Annapolis, Maryland, on the banks of the Severn River. But in five years, 10 years, 15 years, the Naval Academy is going to become a submarine school because the banks of the Severn, <laughs> if things continue, are going to overflow and the Naval Academy is going to be underwater. Now, that will yeah. sound humorous to some people, but those are the things we are facing right now. And we have not come up with a coherent energy plan. Look, everybody would like to reduce carbon dioxide, methane, so forth, but you can't slow a switch. For example, people want to move to electric cars. That's all well and good, but where is the electricity going to come from? Where is it going to be generated? Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, Republicans and Democrats have not been able to come up with a sensible energy problem, and so these are things that we're going to have to understand, and if we don't, the risks are going to be too great. We did that in World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The country came together. And so I think it's going to take a crisis far greater than COVID, far greater than an attempt, an assault on the Constitution. But we have to realize that uh, we can deal with Russia and we can deal with China if we're smart. And I'm not saying they're not problems. But I am saying that we face a, a challenge to, when I say existential, making what we knew as America, as the great land of opportunity and liberty, liberty now something that could be relegated to history. And so the idea of America, as we once know it, that is the existential danger, that the character of this country could be so changed for the worst that all the values and virtues and all the expectations could be for naught. That's the fundamental challenge we face, not that we're all going to die. Well, um, you know, the way that uh, the left wants to change things, um, you know, it's I mean, a lot of people are wanting to die because of, of uh, the change from the um, Norman Rockwell America. Well, I think it's not just I mean, left you know, you, you've got, I'm look, sorry, if, what? If you were listening, if you were listening to the, the July, the uh, January 6th hearings, they are absolutely stunning in terms of what the well, and, and there's no know, doubt, I, there's I, no doubt in my mind. Let me just finish for a second, Carol. And, and I say this as objectively yeah. as I can. There's no doubt in my mind that will be sufficient evidence to suggest that Donald Trump was guilty of sedition according to <laughs> Title 18 of the U.S. Code. Now, what will oh, happen? Oh, you know, I, I don't was purposely know. holding my, I was purposely holding my tongue um, when you kept mentioning January 6th. I am not. Hey, I, I, so I think that those hearings are um, abhorrent. I think that there is so much, you know, there's, the, the, the America is not getting the truth um, and, and about January 6th. And I think, and these hearings being held now so close to midterms and all that is politics. They are, it's just a political move to try to get people, first of all, to try to, you know, put 
Trump in jail or, or at least try to get him to be um, disqualified from running again. So, I, I, you know, I started listening to the, um, to the hearings. I've heard things here and there. I didn't hear it today. But um, it, it just literally nauseates me. What? That may well be. Look, look, and I'm saying this. I, I am a confirmed radical centrist because I think that both the Republican and Democratic parties have lost their souls and their minds. And I think they're two of the greatest problems we face, but we're not going to be able to fix them quickly enough. But the testimony is going to unveil, and you can say it's political, you can say that there's no adversarial relationship. I, I understand all the critiques. What I'm saying is that the evidence that has been exposed and will be exposed, and I don't know how the Justice Department is going to deal with this, but certainly if this was taken to uh, a, a, a jury for an indictment to a grand jury, they would indict in a heartbeat. There's, no, there's not a doubt in my mind, and even in the minds of the most conservative judges like Judge Ludick. But my point is that the issue here, Carol, is this is a clear assault on the Constitution. The question is, do we have a peaceful transfer of power or not? And, and clearly, we did not. And it gets even worse. Uh, and I actually, <laughs> interestingly, in my book, I prophesied what was going to happen. I wrote the book, I finished writing the first half two years ago, in terms of the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Act of 1887, how this could be used to change the results of an election. Um, and now you have the rulings over uh, Roe v. Wade and over concealed carry. And I guarantee you that the result of those, irrespective of how you come out on that, are going to raise even more fundamental problems than the courts are going to be able to sustain. And so this shows further how divided the country is, irrespective of how the court would if the court came out the other way, I'm sure you would have seen the same problem, that the system is just not able to deal with these enormously tough problems. That's the issue. And the constitutional system of checks and balances, which need to be put back in balance, only work if one party has complete veto-proof control of both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and five votes, and that's never going to happen, I don't think, in our lifetime. Two, a crisis like Pearl Harbor rallies the nation. And in fact, COVID divided the nation, as you will agree, or there's civilian uh, okay. compromise. Uh, Both okay. don't exist. I, I don't know if you heard, I don't know if you heard the music, but we do need to take a break now. We can continue with this when we come back. My guest is who obviously feels very strongly about what he's saying, and I guess you weren't warned that I am a Trumper, <laughs> or maybe you were. Anyway, my guest is Harlan Ullman. We're talking about massive attacks of destruction being the biggest threat to our survival. So stay tuned. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't write yourself off. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about massive attacks of disruption being the biggest threat to our survival. And um, my guest today is Harlan Ullman. And I, as I said, I was going to read you some of the names. Well, first of all, the, the, his latest book is called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, Massive um, Attacks of Disruption, and How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential um, the looming existential something. Danger. <laughs> Danger. Danger. There we go. Danger. To a divided um, nation. Yes. And, but prior to this, he's written, uh, this is his 10th book. Before that, he's written Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts, uh, Shock and Awe, Achieving Rapid Dominance, A Handful of Bullets, how the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand still menaces the peace, and in harm's way, American sea power and the 21st century. So those are some of his previous books. Now, before the break, we were talking about where I didn't expect this conversation to to go, uh, talking about, I mean, I totally agree, first of all, I want to make it clear that um, I totally respect my guest, and he has, I mean, these books are like amazing, and I agree with the premise um, of massive attacks of disruption being our biggest threat uh, because, because really they are so big it's hard for people to get their head around them to begin with, no less find solutions. Um, but, uh, but in terms, maybe we could, if you want to talk about January 6th for a little bit more, I mean, I, I will, well, I said my piece about what I think. Um, I mean, I, I'll just add, and then you can say whatever you would like, um, that, uh, you know, there are, there are movies, there are documentaries about this that could explain it better than, than I can. I mean, I've seen some of that, for example, 20, have you, you know, you certainly, have you seen the documentary 2000 Mules? Uh, it rings a bell, but I can't, you know, let's go on. 2000 Mules is a documentary about, uh, by Dinesh D'Souza. And it is about um, the election corruption. And uh, then there have been movies, or at least one, whose uh, name I can't remember right now. Oh, Capital, hmm, um, something with Capital, Capital Crime or Capital something. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, which goes behind the scenes. Uh, there's really a lot of misinformation. I mean, that was a good uh, documentary showing, you know, like a lot of the people who were arrested did get access to um, attorneys. There's, there's a lot behind the scenes sure. that is, that's happening to these people that is really politically based and um, way beyond um, the punishment, way beyond what they did. And plus, you know, I watched Trump that morning, um, his whole speech, and I, he never said, go to the Senate and or go to the Capitol or, and... and um, and destroy things or, you know, uh, hurt people. He never said any of that. He told people to walk over there and make a show of, you know, that they think that the election was stolen, but he never told them to go in and destroy things. Uh, Carol, let me just, let me, look, uh, let me, let me put this in the context of uh, massive attacks of disruption in a second. But if you go back sure. and listen to the hearing today, you have <laughs> somebody who said under oath that Trump, physically tried to grab control of the beast, the presidential limousine, and tried to choke a, <laughs> a Secret Service agent. <laughs> you got to go back to the Capitol, yeah. and you have his White House counsel saying, if we go there, we'll be accused of breaking every crime in the book. Now, look, are the hearings, are the hearings perfect, and from the other side, do you have lots of grounds for uh, of criticism? Yes. What I'm saying is that a grand jury, seeing, seeing the evidence that's going to be presented, I think would have no choice except to verdict, to issue an indictment. But that's not the point. The point is that the Constitution itself is vulnerable. And as I lay out in a scenario of my book, and this was not referred to, to Donald Trump, the 12th Amendment says that if you cannot get 270 votes in the Electoral College, choosing the president goes to the House of Representatives, and the vice president to the Senate. And the House of Representatives will not vote by total numbers, which means the majority party would elect the president. 
but by states. And it turns out in this particular case that Republicans, even though they only have about uh, 35 or 40 percent of the population represented, have 26 of the 24 of the 50 seats. So the Republicans, with a minority representing a minority of the population, could elect the new president, even though the popular vote and the Electoral College vote would have been otherwise. I mean, this is a weakness in the Constitution, irrespective of whom the president is. And unless we can correct that and the Electoral College Act of 1887, where it's possible for a, a, a legislature or a governor to pick electors who are not selected by the people of the majority, you could, uh, you could have a situation in which a president was defeated far worse than Trump was. That president could lose by 20 million votes and so forth and still would have a way of overcoming the Constitution. And what I'm saying is that there are huge flaws. Let me take this a step further, and we'll talk just for a second about uh, concealed carry and what the court has said. Irrespective of what you think about the Second Amendment, the court has now opened, in my mind, a Pandora's box, because given the fact that it's set on concealed carry, does that mean you can carry a weapon um, in a car, in a taxi, in a subway, on an airplane, to a church or a synagogue, or to a shopping mall, or to a football game? That has not been <laughs> decided. And what I'm saying is that that's going to raise so many questions in courts make the situation so difficult that that's going to turn into some kind of an act of major disruption simply because it's going to be very difficult for the courts uh -huh. to deal with this. And so what I'm saying is the well, Constitution has enough contradictions in it and that modern society is going to challenge those contradictions. And in a sense, we're headed back in my mind on the same course, as I note in the book, to 1861. I'm not saying we're going to be in a civil war with... <laughs> people killing each other on both sides, but we could be in the equivalent of a cultural and social civil war in which the long-term well, yeah. future of the country will be, will, be, will be really at jeopardy because we cannot govern ourselves. That's the, that's the existential mm -hmm. crisis that's moving, in my mind. Well, yes, I, absolutely. I mean, I think we're in that already. But I think also it can, uh, you know, devolve into um, violence. I mean, we've seen that with and, George and can, Floyd, for example. People. Sure, of course. Of course. And I'm saying but, that the extremes not, of both wings are making this worse. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, for example, not, in, uh, for example, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to clarify something. Um, I mean, you are not against this Second Amendment, or, or you think it sounds like you were saying that you weren't happy with or didn't think it was a good idea what the um, Supreme Court decided the other day in regard to um, guns. Um, yeah, I, I no, mean, let me put it know. this way. I think their argument, their argument is specious if you believe in history. Did you, the government has always, let me say this again, since 1776, the government has always regulated guns. In 1776, unless you took an oath to the U.S. government, you could not own a firearm. In, in many states, this, I'm going back to 1780s, Gunpowder was loaded guns were prohibited because in homes they could catch fire. If you go back and take a look at the restrictions on guns throughout our history, they have been very, very severe. And the Supreme Court ignored them completely. In fact, they changed history. And so I think it was a really stupid decision based on how they made the argument. But my point is, whatever the result was, it's going to make life far more difficult in future cases. Because where is the boundary? Where is the boundary of where a concealed firearm is legal and where it's not? And I don't think that there's going to be an easy way of reconciling that. And that's just going to increase the intensity of the venom and the dislike that both sides has, whether you're for or against so-called the Second Amendment. It's going to make well, the situation I agree worse. that I, I, I agree that, um, you know, each of those, decisions, and there are more to come on various things from the Supreme Court. It's like a, we're having a tirade of, of uh, decisions all of a sudden. But, I mean, sure. I know they've been in the works, blah, blah, but, um, but it's a little too much for the brain to handle, you know, the fact that these things, the guns, I mean, I am all for the Second Amendment, uh, for preserving the Second Amendment in every which way. Um, and um, so, you know, obviously half the country isn't half the country, or whatever percentage is, you know, 
are against, for and against. Same thing with uh, what they did with abortion. Um, that they're, you know, the well, country. Okay, Carol, let, me, let me ask you one question. Let me just, then let me just shift the conversation so we can get back to the selling the book and why it's important. If you support the Second Amendment, <laughs> should you be allowed to yeah. have a nuclear missile? <laughs> yes or no? Um, should you be allowed to have a nuclear missile? <laughs> okay. That's a good question. And if you say no, if you say no, now you said okay. There are limitations on the Second Amendment. All right. I didn't, I didn't say no. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. But let me tell you a little background. Um, you know, back in the, the day, uh, well, still, um, I, am a, I have long been, let's put it that way, I have long been a big um, advocate for or against media violence. I have done a lot of things. I testified before Congress sure. I, for years. I have done a lot of things against media violence. and I used, And I also would talk about toy guns, which I still believe, you know, that we shouldn't have toy guns either. Like I'm saying, we shouldn't have violent video games, we shouldn't have toy guns, you know, all of that. And then um, uh, Obama became president, you know, because I was kind of, um, I guess, complacent in thinking that, um, that we would never have a need, <laughs> there would never be a situation where we would have a need to fight the government, like literally, you know, with guns and stuff. And right. then Obama became president. And I realized, wait a second, <laughs> what Obama is doing to this country in many different ways, and especially, you know, I'm an expert in terrorism, so especially what he did in regard to terrorism, this is terrible. So, yes, we do need to have guns, and be, there could come a situation where the president and the, and the leaders, you know, are doing things that are very bad for this country, and we would need to protect ourselves. So after that, I mean, not that I was ever against the Second Amendment, but after that, I was more conscious of protecting it. Well, let me, let me, look, uh, let me make a point in my book uh, that's important here. I have been hypercritical of every president since George H.W. Bush, who I think was our last qualified president. And then you take a look at who followed him. I like George W. Bush. But George was not suited for the presidency by virtue of experience, and George made some profound mistakes, not of least the Iraq War was one. Um, then came, and I, I go back to Bill Clinton, who was not experienced enough and made some huge mistakes, but he was lucky because he had the benefit of George H.W. Bush, which put the economy on, on superdrive, redeemed the American military in the, first Gulf War, in the first Gulf War, and indeed saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and managed that magnificently. I can't say enough good things about George H.W. Bush. Then came Clinton, who was charming and bright, and I think a flawed president. <laughs> and then came, unfortunately, uh, W., who was a good guy, but made huge mistakes. Then came Obama, who I think was too young, unready, and lacked judgment. And then came Donald Trump, who I believe is the worst president of the United States. And I argued <laughs> for a long time, we need a president with experience. We need an experience with judgment, character, um, <laughs> and so forth. And in came... <laughs> Joe Biden, vice president for eight years, 36 years in the Senate. And Joe has turned out to be, I, I'll put it politely because he's a serving president, a huge disappointment. And so my question is, where do we go next? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling, but it's a real problem, unfortunately, in terms of, of leadership. But having said that, we have to understand that almost anything that you do right now is becoming disruptive disruptive. You take a look at people who go to work, and in the, in the days, I'm sure, when you and I were growing up, if you were at work or someplace and, and somebody asked you out for a date, you would say yes or no. But now people are afraid of doing that for fear that will be seen as some kind of imposition and be taken as some kind of a sexual harassment act. So that becomes hugely disruptive. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing are things mm -hmm. in our basic social lives and culture where normal activity is becoming disruptive and that leads to consequences that nobody understood, even at small levels. And then when you magnify that to cosmic levels, the war in Ukraine, what's happening with Russia or China or COVID or climate change, uh, all of a sudden these things take on a huge Orwellian proportion. And we have to realize that and understand that the future of our, our country, not in terms of the democracy, but of well-being, prosperity and, and social uh, uh, consensus, uh, are under threat of attack, as I said, probably as much as they were in 1861. And we have to understand that in the book, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, sounds the alarm 
and says whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent, you've got to understand here's where we are and here's what we can do, hopefully, to fix it. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure uh, I like the There's a lot to be uh-huh. fixed. There's a lot to be fixed. I think we agree on that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot to be fixed. Um, all right. Well, we're, actually, this is a great, this is perfect timing because um, we, it's right the time to take a break. And when we come back, we can talk about Ukraine because, um, Excellent. you know, you say no one can win in Ukraine. And you have some really interesting thoughts about that, why that is. So um, when we come back, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. my, guest, my guest is Harlan Ullman. And um, his book is um, Mass- how- this one. The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back uh, to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about massive attacks of disruption being the biggest threat to our survival with my guest, Harlan Ullman, whose book, again, um, after, this lively, after this lively discussion, uh, I would think that maybe a lot of people are going to buy your book. It's called well, uh, The so. Fifth Horseman. <laughs> the Fifth Horseman. And the new, better than, better than, um, I, I bet you you've had some interviews where it's just kind of been boring and yes, just listening to you. <laughs> No, I try to make no. I try to make all my no. I try to make all my interviews very interesting, so people learn something they didn't know. And by the way, when you read when you really read the book closely, the preface starts out on January twentieth, two thousand twenty nine, where the president of the United States, a woman, is taking the oath of office not in the Capitol, but in a concrete iceberg at an undisclosed location. That is the new White House, <laughs> because the old White House has been destroyed along with the Capitol building in many state capitol buildings by a terrorist group called Dan to Destroy America Now. And I go through what is really a dystopian future and then and ask the question, can it happen here? And then I say, nobody anticipated over a million Americans would die of COVID or what the George Floyd murder would do in creating massive violence throughout the country. So yes, it can happen mm-hmm. here. And that's a threat. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a threat for what can happen as to where we're headed and I think you would agree with that. And now we want to talk about Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? And my column yes. last week that said nobody can win. And the reason nobody yes. can win is this. First, I have been extremely critical of the Biden administration for self-deterring and telling Russia what we can't do. <clears throat> Second, we have mm-hmm. been too slow 
in providing enough of the right stuff quickly enough to Ukraine. The heroism and competence of Ukraine cannot be overstated. They have been brilliant. But there is no way way they're going to be able to recapture all the territories that were lost uh, after February 24th. And Crimea is going to stay Russian because, quite frankly, Crimea, if they had a referendum, and they had one, but a genuine referendum, the Crimeans do not want to go back to Ukraine. So there's going to be, have to be some division. And that's going to be tough for President Zelensky because he has said, I'm not going to give in, and he's going to have to give in at some stage. Similarly for the Russians, it is a bloodbath. It is a bloodbath. And it's the Russians and not the elite here who uh, are going to pay the price because of all the sanctions and so forth. And the alliance right now, as you know, there's a NATO summit that's being held in Madrid. We'll come up with a new strategic concept. They'll take all these kind of steps that look impressive. But over time, the ability of the alliance to stay very, very coherent in this case is very much a factor of Russian gas and oil. Russia is making about a billion dollars a year, a billion dollars a day, selling gas and oil. And whereas there may be ways to get around the oil issue, it will take a long time for Western European countries to come up with an alternative to liquid natural gas. And so there's going to have to be some kind of a compromise in which nobody will win and everybody will have to give something up. And unless we do that, the risk of some kind of escalation is very real. We see that in the Baltics, where the prime minister of Estonia is concerned that NATO, NATO strategy is not currently going to save um, Estonia if there's a war. And you have the Russians threatening nuclear weapons, which they're not going to use. They're going to threaten Lithuania because Lithuania is imposing sanctions on Kaliningrad, which is a tiny enclave belonging to Russia that's separated from Russia. It's sort of an outlet on the Baltic Sea. And worse, as I said earlier, there's going to be a food crisis. There's going to be massive starvation. Possibly half a billion people are going to be affected. Where are they going to go? In 2008, because of the war in Syria and the Arab Spring, Millions try to get into Europe, and you'll recall the, the boat people who were dying in the Mediterranean and all the pressure that was put on European countries. Well, think what's going to happen when you have 300 million people, Africa, Middle East, trying to go someplace. So mm-hmm. migration is going mm-hmm. to be a huge, huge problem. for the. There are already 5 million or so uh, Ukrainians who are seeking shelter outside the country. And so Europe mm-hmm. and the United States, if you think we have a problem on the border now, Wait. Right. Wait. Who's dealing? Yeah, I agree. So so there's got to be a solution. And the solution right now is not a strategy. In Vietnam, our strategy was to kill as many Viet Cong and North Vietnamese as we could. Killing your way to victory doesn't work. But all we can do right now is support the Ukrainians and hope they can kill as many Russians to make Putin realize that his best option is to seek some kind of a solution now where he still keeps some control of the territories he sees, has the option to try and take Kiev in the future and hoping that the Americans and NATO will not support Ukraine sufficiently to prevent that from happening. That's the outcome that I see occurring. It's not satisfactory. We have not done enough and we have to do more, but we are limited. And unfortunately, this administration has not, in my view, uh, (laughs) done what it needed to do. And perhaps even if it did, it, I'm not sure that necessarily would have worked, but it certainly would have been a lot better opportunity for it to work than it is today. So are you saying that um, that America, Biden, um, instead of trying to be so cautious and um, not sending American troops there, um, not, you know, at the beginning, um, you know, they were saying they weren't even going to send equipment, um, do you think all of these different, you know, these cautions, various cautions, do you think that, that, that they should be um, uplifted? They should be lifted and, and we should do all well, these no, things? First, and we yeah, should... No, we should never. We should, we, no, we're not going to send American troops there. That's out of the question. However, we should have started sending long-range fires and artillery. The whole notion of sending more aircraft is very questionable because... There's an issue, something called repair parts. And sometimes sending an airplane, which requires so much maintenance, 
is worse than not sending at all. So I don't think that's the issue. Mm-hmm. But we should have sent more advanced equipment much earlier. We should also have yeah. <laughs> enabled the Ukrainians. There's a huge bridge across the Sea of Azov called the Kerch Bridge. That should have been taken out. It hasn't been. We should have given the Ukrainians anti-ship missiles so they could have sunk the Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. And we should have enabled the Ukrainians with some sort of systems to launch a series of attacks back into Russia, just to make sure the Russian people understood that there's a real war. We did none of those uh-huh. things because they were seen as too well, escalatory. And the only way you can yeah, make right. point, and similarly with NATO, similarly with NATO, even though the president has said, NATO, <clears throat> we're not going to give up one inch of territory. Um, the one area where, and I go into this in great detail in my book, where the Russian military, which is proven in many ways to be incompetent, which has surprised many people, including myself, is, to, is that they have a numerical advantage in so-called short-range tactical nuclear weapons. And what I would have done earlier is to say that I'm assigning one of our, and this may be a little bit too arcane for people to understand, but to say I am assigning one of our ballistic missile submarines, our Trident submarines, which in a single submarine has enough nuclear power to destroy Russia, and saying I am sending it under the command of our NATO commander just to show to the Russians we're not going <clears> to <throat> fall down to any kind of nuclear blackmail. Uh-huh. These are all signs uh-huh. and signals that would have been well understood in Moscow. They are not overly escalatory, but they're signs of resolve. We did none of those things. And so if Ukraine manages yes. to survive as an independent state with some sort of sovereignty and some sort of end of the war and a way to rebuild it, I think we'll be very lucky indeed. And maybe that will happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe we will be able to send enough stuff. But right now I'm very critical of the stuff we didn't do and should have. And I think a majority, a great majority of people who are in this business on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, tend to agree with me and are critical of the administration. But sadly, we are where we are. And Americans are rightly concerned about inflation, gas prices, so forth and so on. And so uh, Ukraine remains a real issue, but I think that's the way it's going to be resolved. Well, you know, um, I, I, I've done some research about, on Putin, and I wrote some essays and so on on Putin. And it really isn't. He is, um, well, first of all, you know, he, there's a lot of things going. He's paranoid, and um, there are a lot of things going on with him. And it is not beyond uh, the possibility I mean, it is not necessarily just crying wolf when he says that he will use nuclear weapons because no, he no. is feeling, especially, especially, if, um, especially if he feels pushed into a corner, uh, indeed he could well, and because he's feeling, you know, he's, he's, there's things going on in terms of his facing his mortality, um, whether he yeah. actually does have uh, illnesses or not, but he's, um, his age, and he's lived. He's two years younger than the average death age of men in Russia, and a whole bunch of other things that would he wants. If he if he's worried about dying, or if he thinks he might be nearing death, you know, in, in a year or two or whatever, um, he would want to go out in a in a flash of glory. He would do anything rather than. There's no chance that he would allow. Uh, Ukraine to win, like in other words, for Russia to lose. That is not a possibility. So really negotiations have to be um, what is done and allowing him to save faith. Yeah. Let me, let me just say that I have three chapters in my book on Putin and Xi. And I probably have read everything that you can possibly imagine on Putin. I will say several things. He is not irrational. I don't believe he's ill. And from his perspective, what he has done is understandable. And I hope people will read that because you have to understand yes, that yes. Russia's view of the world. And so I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I think I know a lot more about Putin and I certainly know a lot more about uh, communism in Russia because that was one of my PhD subjects. And I don't say that in an arrogant sense. What turned Putin off over time was the fact that he was disrespected by a series of presidents going back to Bill Clinton, who refused to listen to him and understand 
Russia's need that began with the expansion of NATO. And I won't go through the litany of things that turned us against Putin and Putin against us. But finally, in November of 2001, when Putin sent the demands, the three things that were really quite reasonable to the United States, the European Union, and NATO, saying, one, we need a new strategic framework for Europe. He's absolutely right. Two, Ukraine cannot join NATO. And even though we said we have this notion of, mem- uh, of open membership, nobody would allow NATO to come in. And third, <clears throat> that he was worried about further expansion of NATO east. And we rejected it. We completely snubbed him and said, well, we'll be happy to talk about arms control. And at that stage, I believe, and Bill Burns, our director of CIA, as well as a former ambassador of Russia, agreed with me, agrees, that at that stage, I think Putin was ambivalent about whether or not to go into Ukraine. And at that stage, he just mm-hmm. said, the West is not going to listen. This is what I'm going to do. He was misinformed mm-hmm. by his advisors because they thought they'd be in Kiev in two days, take over Kiev, and Ukraine would fall. And so they misunderstood and miscalculated, just like the Americans did in Vietnam and Iraq the second time. In Afghanistan, we should have learned from the Russians. And where we are is where we are. But what Putin mm-hmm. has done... Well, yeah, is that, okay. No, let me just finish. Right. This is important. He has well, prepared we only have a, we have like we're at the end of our we're at the end we're supposed to okay. be ending right now, um, so I just want to say to put into context here um, that uh, that yes it is Russia's idea, I'm not getting into the, the presidents and all of that but I'm just saying that Putin's idea you know whether it's uh, realistic or not he it is his um, fear of people encroaching on Russia, and it has to do with World War II and, and his experience as a little yes. boy in World War II. So, I, I, actually, I did a show on, on Putin. Um, so and all of you can listen, can check out the previous, um, a previous uh, Dr. Carroll's Couch when I uh, was, it was just myself talking about Putin. But in any case, um, you know, all of these are huge topics. Let me just thank my guest, Harlan Ullman, and again, repeat the name of his new book, his 10th book, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. So, I recommend that you Can I make, read a, final com- Can I make a final comment, Carol? Sure, sure, sure. Um, first of all, thank you. This is a great discussion. I hope you'll have me back. Second, please buy the book because there's an awful lot of stuff in it that people need to know so they can make good decisions. And third, believe it or not, Vladimir Putin's highest domestic priority, as he said in his State of the Union speech, is to raise the life expectancy of Russians from 62 to 70. That tells you something Uh about where he's coming. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes, yes. His uh, concerns. Well, thank you again, yeah. and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.